You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. Hope you're well. The interview subject that I have coming up for you is Craig and Lum from the outfit Heathen. Craigan's also spent some time in Exodus, and indeed he still manages the band. Now the catalyst for the chat though, the reason for our conversation, is because Heathen have a new album out for 2020. It'll be released on the 18th of September. It's called Empire of the Blind, and I've got to say it's one of my favourite releases of the year thus far. Before we get to the chat, I'll let you know about a quarter of the way through or so I had to go and take care of something for my daughter because it was about, I don't know, by that stage it was about 6.30 or so in the morning. And she'd gotten up and wanted me to help her get some breakfast organised before she went to go to school. So that's it. You probably won't even notice it, but it is in there just in case you do. And that's the reason for it. So here he is. Without further delay, Craig and Lum from Heathen. Should we talk Heathen? I think we need to because Empire of the Blind is fantastic. And uh, look, when I had a chat to David, I said I thought it was a perfect marriage of melody and brutality. Okay. Um, I've been a fan of your guitar playing for a fair while. I'm a musician and, and a guitarist myself. So the guitar awesome, playing. Thanks. Look, the guitar playing is yet another gem in, in the heavy metal crown that you guys wear. So I just feel like all those things that we're talking about, notwithstanding, I just think we're so blessed in 2020 because, you know, whilst I love the 80s and uh, as well and the sort of music that came out of there, I just think we're spoiled for choice these days when it comes to killer guitar playing more than any other point in history, to be honest with you. You know, and for yourself, like a veteran who has spent so many years, you know, I understand your history with Prototype and, uh, you know, you're helping out Exodus as well and you've served a very long, I wouldn't call it an apprenticeship, but an internship, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) But look, you're one of those guys that is a world-class guitarist and you just needed an outlet and with Exodus and Heathen, you're finally becoming a household name to genuine fans of of hard rock and heavy metal. So for you personally, mate, you must be thrilled with how things have worked out for you and especially the way that Empire of the Blind sounds. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you for all the compliments. I really appreciate that. Um, It's been a long time coming, you know, in terms of getting this record done. Uh, I've I've been in the band for uh, 13 years now. I think I'm the third longest running member behind Lee and and David. Um, So... You know, it's uh, we we put out the Evolution of Chaos album in 2010, and um, and we did a lot of touring for it, but it never really uh, it never really took off. Uh, I think the way that we had had hoped it would, and um, and now that we're you know on Nuclear Blast and have uh, what I think is probably a little bit better support system, yeah. um, we're really hopeful yeah. that this new record can can uh can do something great because you know um we all put a lot of work into it um i spent a year working on it um either writing and recording um you know uh it certainly it certainly came out great i'm really happy with the way that it sounds and everybody's performances are killer um so you know, it's really we're we're kind of still in that waiting game. We have just a few weeks left before the record comes out, and um, and we're just really hopeful that we can we can see it kind of get a get a little bit of recognition. This band has has never had the recognition um, that it deserves, and I say that even from my sort of fan perspective, growing up listening to this band. So, mm-hmm. um, great, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think. Uh, the- yeah. 
the band was a bit of a the band was like a curiosity there for a long time. See, I, I was always aware of Dave's uh, involvement with Blind Illusion, and so I sort of followed the bands that came out of that band. You know, I mean, people don't realize how many bands basically were uh, motivated by the involvement of people in Blind Illusion, like Primus, for example, and and you guys, and I. Uh, you know, th- these are musicians' bands. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're a musician, you tend yeah. to gravitate and want to investigate and find out these these sort of music because it's real music. You know, like, strip away the commercial incentive, okay, which, of course, has to be there, but it's still the, the motivation for crafting pure and unadulterated, just killer fucking music. It's there with you guys. And li- listening to this album here, and I've listened, I have listened to it a fair bit, I've got to say. Uh, I've even been drawn back to it. It's one of those albums with a lot of melody, but like I was saying in the intro, um, it's brutal at the same time, which I think it, it needs to be to sort of cut through and be um, to attract, say, the garden variety heavy metal fan in 2020. So, look, I take it that a lot of the riffs that I'm listening to, they're yours. So how long have these been in the oven, so to speak? Have you been, have you been crafting a lot of these riffs over the past sort of 20, 30 years or so before they've seen a release on Empire of the Blind? Uh, well, I mean, um, I actually wrote all the music and all the lyrics for this record. Um, and it was, it was written, uh, I started writing the music in 2012 when we signed with nuclear blast and I had, I think I had about half of the album demoed with vocals and everything by 2014. And then, uh, you know, I kind of got pulled into the the Exodus Vortex and was touring heavily with them for their last record. And uh, there really just wasn't that much time to do, you know, to really focus on it. I was able to, you know, have enough time in between tours to, you know, maybe work on a song here or there. But there wasn't really time to just dig in and finish it. So, um, it, you know, t- it took did take a long time. Um, there was one track, uh, from the original demos that was completely reworked, which is the title track actually. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it, it did take a long time to sort of, you know, take shape. But I mean, part of that was just because I didn't have a lot of free time to work on it. And, uh, you know, Dave and David and Lee both had, um, they have riffs and ideas and mute, you know, all that stuff, but they didn't have anything that was really fully ready to go. So, you know, I know Lee still has riffs and I actually have more, more music than what's on the record, but, um, you know, uh, we just kind of collectively made a decision as a group to go for it. You know, just those guys liked what I presented to them and, um, everybody was ready to do a record. So, um, just, we just went for it and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely my baby, so to speak, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just happy that, that it came out so good. You know, I mean, the, the, that, it, that it, sometimes you create something and it doesn't come out how you sort of envision it. Yeah. And this yeah. one definitely came out, um, just how I hoped it would really. And I, and the same for all the other guys. I mean, everybody put in such a great performance, like I said, and, um, and really took things to the, to the next level and, you know, came in with ideas to add to the songs. Um, 
you know, during the recording process. So, um, it was, it, it, it's really great. I'm really proud of it. Um, you know, I hope people can, can sort of see the magic in it. There's a lot of depth and, uh, layers to the album that you might not even hear the first time through. So yeah, you're right on that point. You've got to listen to it with headphones on. This is not an album to put on through your iPhone speakers. You, you react really, I mean, you can do that. Sure. And uh, God, I listen to plenty of music in the showers. I've listened to this one here whilst I've been uh, taking care of the kids and um, all the rest of it, you know, in the day-to-day environment. But I tell you where it's gold is when you've got the Air- AirPods in, which I think what you've got in now, and you can hear a little bit more of the nuances going on. And you're typically right. drawn into a lot of the uh, to the ear candy that you've you've done on this one here. And and you can hear what you can hear. This makes sense now. You can hear decades of experience. Okay, and what and you know what I love about the album too? It makes so much sense now after what you said. It is a singular vision. This is your vision. This is the greatest res- of respect to um, the other members of the band. But it's it's got the kind of clarity and it's got the it's got the kind of cohesiveness. That's the word. It's got the kind of cohesiveness that only really comes when it's somebody's singular vision. Okay, and I was wondering about that because a lot of bands. Um, this is not a diss on Faith No More, by the way, who are one of my favourite bands of all time, but uh, particularly their last two albums, uh, Album of the Year and uh, oh, Soul Invictus, didn't like them very much at all because I understand they were basically just a hodgepodge of the different art, different musicians in the band coming in and presenting their ideas and Billy Gould basically going, well, I'll try and make the best of this. It doesn't sound right. cohesive. But what you've done here does sound extremely cohesive right the way through on all of the album's tracks. You can hear that... There, uh, there's a lot of variety of ideas. It's not about that there's there's not a variety of ideas because there absolutely is. But you can hear that um, a slide rule has been run over them as a collective. So I do tend to think this is an album that rather than be absorbed um, on a, on a song-by-song basis, you need to listen to it collectively. You actually get the most out of it when you actually sit down, turn the lights off or what have you, and maybe go for a walk or a run. Um, and you put the uh, the headphones in, and you really absorb it that way. So, mate, look, congratulations on that front because I mean, it is it's well, a killer. Thanks, album. thanks. Yeah, I mean, that was actually the intention. It was really to present an album um, like those classic albums that we grew up loving and wanting to listen to over and over again. Um, that that mm. was my sort of idea from the beginning. There are too many albums that come out these days. And I still buy a lot of music. I, I buy I stack to CDs that, you know, I get on a regular basis. And I'm listen and and the thing that's sort of missing for me these days is it, it most albums sound like a collection of songs. They yeah. don't sound like yeah. an album in the sense that it's well thought out and um the tra- even the track order uh I, I, for the for the Empire of the Blind album, I really wanted to have something where there was a beginning and an end and a roller coaster ride in between, yeah. just like you would yeah. normally have like on those classic records. And I mean, if I'm saying classic, I mean some of the things that the the most highly revered albums of you know at least my generation are those you know there's the three Metallica albums: Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and and Justice for All. Yeah. All of those, they yeah. did this. They they more or less had the same idea of that that vision of a beginning and an end, and then 
a variety of things throughout, but they all felt like they went together as a, as an album. Um, and there's, you know, the, the other beautiful thing about the thrash genre that I, I find, I find has kind of gone astray a little bit is when this sort of, when this genre of music started, there were no rules and bands did whatever came naturally to them. They didn't care about what tuning you were in. They didn't care about, um, you know, what type of song it was. They did everything it, and, and it came out and it felt, and it felt natural. Nobody was forcing anything. Yeah. yeah. These days, yeah, it yeah. seems like there's like, like, you know, there are, are a group of thrash fans that they only like it if it's in E tuning, they only like it if it's at a certain tempo, um, you know, and, and they put a bunch of rules around everything. And to me, that's, that's ruining what the genre was all about in the first place, or it's contrary to what the genre was. It was about fuck the rules. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, we, we did a lot of variety stuff. Um, just like, I think this band has always done. There's, you know, fast stuff, there's heavy stuff, there's epic stuff, there's a ballad, there's mm -hmm. an instrumental. And I think that that kind of variety is really what made those old records that we loved listening to so great. You know, they, they, they really did take you on a roller coaster ride and they knew like when there was a ballad, you got to follow it up with something that's like going to hit you over the head, like wake up, <laughs> uh, you know, and they, they really thought through, they, they thought through the album more because that was what the format was. And unfortunately these days it's more about a song, um, and getting on a Spotify playlist or something than it is about making a killer record. Um, and, a, and a, an album, album listening record. So, uh, that was the intention. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you sort of picked up on that. There are a lot of little details that I think people will discover um, with multiple listens. There are some musical themes that even run throughout the album, uh, interspersed in different songs. Um, you know, there it's not a concept album or anything. It's just sometimes those things just come out naturally and they and they work, you know, to sort of tie the tie the album together. Agreed. Um, what I was wondering too is the the guitar and the amp setup that you did on the recording because parts of it sound like it was recorded live, but I know how difficult that is to capture something that sounds as tight as what you've got. So, can you talk me through the guitars and the amp setup that you used and how you captured that vicious guitar sound you've got? Yeah. So um, the amp that's used on the album is a Mesa Boogie Mark IV. Uh, it's an amp that I have had uh, since the, since that model of amp came out. Um, and it's, and, and I, a buddy of mine has one as well, uh, from the same time period. And the one that I have just, it's one of those amps that just sounds a little, sounds special. It sounds a little bit better than all the other amps of the same, you know, uh, model or whatever. Yeah. Uh, every once in a while you find one of those amps that just has something extra special about it. So, um, what I did is I mic'd up the amp and, uh, and I, I got the, the raw tone recorded 
<clears throat> and then I sent a wave file to a guy I know actually in Australia that makes Kemper profiles. Okay. And he, I, I was, I was thinking to myself, eh, well, it, it's worth trying. We'll see how close it gets. He sent me a, a profile back for my Kemper and I uh, plugged in and I recorded it and it, I was blown away at he it, it, he was literally able to capture every bit of the sound. I mean, one of the things that I thought for sure he was not going to be able to get was there's this sort of woofy sound that comes. It's like in the 250 hertz range or whatever it is. Whereas when you palm mute, it has that sound, right? I thought for sure there's no way that could be captured on the temper. Well, he did it. Um, I recorded them side by side and they sound identical. So, um, we ended up using the Kemper, but it's that same, it's that same tone. And the reason why we ended up using the Kemper was, um, if I wanted to go back later and revise something, which I did, uh, I could easily just punch in a section and, uh, and it sounded exactly the same. Uh, whereas if I had, you know, if you use a microphone and you, and you touch it in any way, or, you know, the barometric pressure is different, it seems, or anything else, you know, there's this subtle difference in the tone that you can't ever, um, you know, sort of match. And so from a creative perspective, this made it great to, to be able to go back in and like, you know, make little changes and stuff. When I sent the, when I sent the guitar tracks to Zeus, the producer. Um, I recorded the, the rhythm tracks and my guitar solos here at home. And when I sent them to Zeus, he thought I had mic'd up an amp. He, he, he was like, there's no way I would have thought this was a Kemper. Cool. So yeah. uh, it was kind of a hybrid of, uh, you know, a hybrid of technologies there that, that were just utilized uh, well. I know a lot of people record with Kempers and there are some bad sort of profiles but um, in this partic particular case, like I said, you couldn't tell the difference between the amp tone and the Kemper tone. Wasn't and actually, the last, the last Exodus album was recorded with a Kemper profile of the tempo and the damped tone. Uh, oh, wow. So okay. it, it's, it's totally like you would never know. Um, uh, uh, there's sort of a, a, a negative connotation when you start talking about using digital amps, but uh, for some people, but. But in this case, you know, I think most people would never know um, that we that we did that. But uh, that was it. That's how we did it. Um, that's how we tracked basically everything. We just had a, a really um, we were fortunate to be able to capture a, a, an awesome tone and then um, and still still had that little bit of live room feel or something in it. You know what I mean? With the even though it was a, a close mic amp, um, it's, uh, it's hard to capture that in the digital sort of setting. Yeah, it's just that campers are just another tool. So it depends on the expertise of the users. So you're an expert with these things in terms of crafting your guitar tone. So you're able to figure it out. And in that way, you're able to find somebody who could help you figure it out, meaning, meaning the Aussie guy who could help you create the profile there and I, I look I get up to 20 or 30 releases a uh, a week at the moment from bands and I, and I a bit like what you're saying Zeus was saying I can hear when when it's when when a uh, 
an inexperienced user's gone to the camper and gone, I like that sound. And they haven't right. understood that you've really got to round out the tone and you've got to own the tone. It's got to be something that comes from within you. You can't sort of, you know, when you're doing demos, it's a bit different. But I think when you're doing albums and you're playing live, I really think you've got to figure out your own tone, specific tone. And But I think that also comes with decades of experience, which, which of course, you've got. And uh, look, I'm going to switch gears for a second and uh, ask about the COVID thing. Because I think for seasoned veterans sure. like like yourself, um, I'm sen- I'm actually sensing there's there's more opportunity for creating content now for you, and the reason I say that is because you can't go out in the road, you can't promote an excellent release like this one here. But I know you've done a lot of videos because I've watched a fair few of them, um, and I know the guys in Suicide Silence have been doing their uh, virtual world tour where they have different people from different territories come in at, at for an hour or two and watch them play live and then ask questions and do a bit of a back and forth sort of thing. So I, I guess, you know, you've, you've been doing this as long as anybody. So do you think that COVID will have such a detrimental effect on the live music industry that many bands won't recover and it will go back to something for heavy metal, that is to what it was like in the 90s where there was about five bands that could tour and the rest of the bands were sort of in hibernation? Or... Do you think that we're going to come out, come because until there's a vaccine, we're stuck effectively. Do you think that enterprising individuals such as yourself and Dave are going to put your heads together and you're just going to go, well, we've got an audience now, we're not going to lose it. We're just going to keep on creating content. And, and what do you think a lot of that content might look like? Uh, well, that's, a, uh, that's the, like the question of the, year for musicians right there is how what's what's the you know what's the musical landscape going to look like after COVID-19 it's to be honest with you it's impossible to 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 tell Hmm. um you know uh this industry and all of the sort of um pieces of the machine so to speak uh there's there's a lot of them and my concern is that there it's going to be very, very difficult for not just the musicians, but the crew, the uh, clubs, the booking agencies. For It's going to be very difficult for a lot of these uh, people and companies to survive this because this is, you know, thinking about crew, for example, those guys work constantly. Hmm. And it's been, you know, uh, almost six months now of them not being able to work. And so, um, you know, you've, you've got to think that at at some point people are going to start to panic. Like when we get to the end of this year and there's still no work, because I don't think anybody's going to tour this year. Um, and I I honestly am not sure. I'm not sure how many people are going to tour in the first half of next year either. Um, so it's a, it's a hard question to ask for me personally. I love uh, playing live. I love interacting with the fans. I'm also a homebody. <laughs> uh, I love being home. Uh, I, I like working from home, and I do a lot of different things. So uh, besides playing in the bands and recording and stuff like that, I'm, I'm, I manage Heathen. I manage Exodus. I manage a band called War Curse from Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I help a lot of other bands. Uh, with management type stuff and, and music publishing stuff. I do guitar books. Um, I release them. I release digital music, you know, so I do a lot of different things. So I will have no, um, 
lack of things to keep me busy. Um, touring provides a, a, I would say the vast majority of the income for most metal musicians these days. Uh, so people are going to have to get really, really creative with how they're doing things and what they're doing. I think we're starting to see that, uh, with some of the band merchandise, um, you know, bands are exploring doing other things that they hadn't done before, like puzzles and, you know, like things that you wouldn't associate as bands, you know what I mean? Uh, so I think that that's going to have to continue for, for people. Um, I really don't know if it's going to fully recover. I mean, I can only think of it from my perspective of a guy who like, you know, next summer I turn 50. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I when I was growing up, 55 was retirement age. Now, these days, of course, that's not the case. It's more like <laughs> 70. But, uh, but you know, how, how long are these guys that play thrash metal or death metal or whatever? How how long are they going to go out and do it? You know, I mean, I, I can't imagine, uh, uh, you know, somebody doing something as challenging as like death metal drumming, for example doing that into their sixties. You know what I mean? So it's, I think, I think a lot of bands are going to be forced to at least start thinking more long-term like future, like what, what, what's going to happen after the not just after next, the next album, but what's going to happen in 10 years, you know, or whatever and start planning for that. Um, I certainly am. Uh, you know, branching out and doing a lot more uh, types of stuff. Um, and it, and it, it's been sort of almost overwhelming in terms of the amount of work to do. But I know that at some point, one of the, you know, one of the uh, facets of my, my musical livelihood is going to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, I need to replace it with something and still be, you know, happy doing what I'm doing. So it's, it's really hard to say. Uh, I, there's a part of me that wonders how, how many bands are going to survive. You know, it's, yeah, I, I think the, the big, the big ones that have enough money to last them are going to be okay. Um, the ones that have been, uh, making smart business moves over the years, um, and they and they really have their business together. They're going to be okay. The younger bands and the you know uh, any anybody who's who's sort of middle aged and has families, it's going to be tough on them. I feel really bad for a lot of people. So um, hopefully it'll recover soon, and and bands can get back to to doing you know what they've been doing. But if the future looks different. Uh, we're all going to have to find ways to sort of adapt and survive, I think. Hmm. Yeah, you make so many great points in there. And, and one of them was that I didn't realize that you were uh, uh, Exodus's manager. Okay, so you shifted over and, and you're doing that role as well from just not just being a musician. So it sounds like you're, you're set up, like you've got the business skills to survive what's actually going to happen here. But what with, with Exodus and performing in them is... is um, I mean, I take it Slayer's not going to come back. It's done. So is, is Gary coming back into the band, um, you know, if things do get to the point where there's a vaccine and you can perform live again, will you guys do like the Iron Maiden setup where you, where you keep no. yourself? 
no, no, no. He's he's back full time. Um, you know, I, I'm I just basically um, uh, slid over from playing on the stage with them to um, working behind the scenes. But I mean, uh-huh. I, yeah. I you know I, I have a I, I spent about. 12 years of my life uh, making video games for Activision. So uh, I I was a video game producer and have a lot of sort of business experience from um, from that yeah. other career that I'm able to sort of pull in. Um, and it helps me, you know, when I'm reading contracts or negotiating, you know, or any of that kind of stuff, where typically those are the those are the places where where bands are. Um, are uh, vulnerable. We'll put it that way because they're not, um, you know, they, they, they may not be good at the, at the business stuff. You know, there, uh, there are creative people that are, are, uh, amazing creative talent. But if you ask them to look at a contract, they would just probably rather sign it and, you know, and live with whatever it is, than uh, then yeah. learn yeah. to read it, so to speak. So, Anyway, I mean, yeah, I, he he's back full time. They're actually going into the studio in a uh, little over little over a week, um, and uh, you know they're going to be starting on the new record, and I'll just be helping them in a in a different capacity. Mate, you you wear a lot of hats. God, you know, um, you're a programmer, so you're a coder. Do do you see that programming and coding? This is, I always wanted to ask somebody this who's been in the biz. So there's this push these days to get, and did you, I don't know whether it happened, I can't remember that happened here in Australia or happened in the States, but they were talking about truckers becoming coders. Do you remember that with the automation of the trucking industry? And they were saying some, some person, maybe they had good intentions, maybe they were just being an asshole, but they came out and said, well, truckers just need to learn how to code. And I'm thinking... I've done a little bit of it. And it's, yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I'm good at business stuff, but I'm not a coder. I'm a producer. So I'm, I'm used to, um, I'm used to managing, uh, budgets and schedules. And for, you know, like when I was in the video game industry and I would work and I worked on, I worked on a couple of the guitar hero games and a double Oh seven and a bunch of the, uh, Tony Hawk video games and stuff like that. So you're talking about like for a video game, it's like a multi-million dollar budget and you have a schedule and different teams of development, you know, different development teams working on different parts of the project. And it's basically my job was to manage all of it. Mm -hmm. So that's the part that I sort of bring over, um, into the music business, uh, in terms of programming, I mean, about as complicated as I get is, you know, transcribing music and for guitar books. I have a background in musical education and I, you know, I use that also for different things, but, um, I, I mean, I tried, I tried learning Java once and it, I wasn't very successful. <laughs> I think ultimately it was that I didn't really want to do it though. Um, yeah. it was more, yeah. I, I, if I want to do something, I'll learn it and I'll get proficient at it. But, um, yeah, not, not everybody is, uh, capable of, of, learning those other things you know somebody that drives a truck might be really good at driving a truck and might be creative too but can't you know balance a checkbook so uh you know and vice versa there might there are people that are mathematically inclined or programmers that have no creative um 
you know, bone in their body or in, mm-hmm. in their brain, I guess. Uh, so, you know, I don't think every, I don't think everybody can just switch like that. You know, it's going to be difficult when some, uh, you know, world is definitely changing into more of a, a digital world. Um, and I think some people are going to have a really hard time adapting to that. People that like work with their hands, for example, yeah. um, and are, yeah. you know, kinetic, that's, that's not easy for somebody to make a switch and suddenly, you know, learn how to do something else, you know? So it's one of those things, like I, I, I still teach guitar lessons too as another hat, but uh, one of the things that I, that I look, that I found through teaching lessons is that not everyone learns the same way. And unfortunately most teachers have a way that they teach and they use that for all students. Like they're all the same, but, but people learn differently. So some guy might learn by watching a a YouTube video and some guy might learn better by reading a tablature book and somebody else might need you to like show them, (laughs) you know, or, or walk them through it. It's so every, you know, everybody learns in a different way, you know, and, and, uh, I don't know how it's going to be interesting to see how the world adapts. I, I, I wonder if as thing, you know, education will change sort of to match, um, you know, the new world, so to speak, you know, how it'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out. Your, your children will be learning different things than, you know, we learned growing up. That's for sure. Oh, it's crazy to see it. Man. I mean, especially with COVID, most of their learning over the past six months has been via an iPad uh, or a computer screen. And they're already, right. they're already inclined to that anyway. So my, my eldest daughter in particular, um, I've, I've banned the TV. I've got to say I've banned um, the captive audience things are just sitting there and staring at a TV, cartoons or YouTube. If she's these days, mate, they're playing games with their friends four doors down, you know, four blocks over. Um, yeah. So they're actually participating in it. And I, I've I've just graduated from university myself, so I've just completed an undergrad degree. And one of the subjects was digital media and society. And uh, so we dived into a lot of this stuff because, of course, parents are extremely concerned about the amount of time that their kids are spending in front of screens but the devil's in the detail there and it's and it's like i was like i mentioned just then it's if they're sitting there and they're absorbing information well it's not even information it's just content and there's no two-way interaction that's extremely bad for them but if they're participating and if they're using problem solving skills and the like well that's where the opportunity actually is so i don't actually have i mean she's not on it more than two hours a day we put a cap on it that way but weekends it might be a bit more um but we put a cap on it, on it, so as though we do take them across the road to the park, and I kick the football around with them, or we play cricket, or whatever it might be. We take them to the beach or something, but it's not going away anytime soon. I mean, this is here to stay. People are going to be using screens to get things done in a way that we can't even imagine in ten years' time, even. So, yeah, I, I see that. I I just think people too, and look, I've had to do it too. I've had to use learn how to use the Adobe suite of products, uh, Premiere Pro, Photoshop. Um, illustrator and it, at first it was daunting to be honest with you because I'm 42 and I started learning this stuff when I was 40 and your initial feelings are I don't want to do this because yeah. I'd much prefer to draw with my hands and be analog about it but it takes a couple of months but once you get into it you find yourself looking forward to learning how to do new things and looking at the YouTube clips and the like and it can become 
pretty consuming when you think about it because the possibilities and the uh, are, are really are endless especially if you, you find youtube clips that sort of teach you how to do things that you didn't know how to do and then you get motivated and inspired by that so i've started to become a little bit of a filmmaker through premiere pro um and and this is my point is that i think if people are creating content and that they're creating things that are meaningful for people you've just got to be smart about it and then work out how to monetize it like what you guys do with the bands so I think there's there's plenty of opportunities there for people, but there are mate, there's there's a lot of people even that I know that I don't think want to participate in that world that do want to stay analog and don't want to get digital. But unfortunately, you, you can't halt that type of progress. It's it's just impossible. It's a wave that's going to crash over you, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for the new Heathen record, I, I've had to become a video editor. I mean, all the promotional yeah. videos that are. That, that nuclear blast has been posting, um, uh, you know, with the, with us t as talking heads, so to speak, those have, those have all been me editing them together from, you know, pieces of the music videos and, you know, video that I got from Dave or, or that I filmed myself of me myself, you know what I mean? So it's, mm. it's crazy. I never thought when I was a teenager wanting to be a, a musician or rock star or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, back then you, you dream, uh, being a video editor was not on my lit to do list. You know, I had, I wouldn't even have imagined that I would be editing videos for my band. Um, so, you know, we have to create that content though, because essentially in the world we live in now, everything is so, uh, temporary and it lasts about, uh, you know, a week and then you have to remind people. <laughs> Uh, by producing something else uh, to, to just get them, just trigger them. Hey, don't forget about us. Uh, you know, we know you just got 300 other new bands songs or whatever this week. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's the whole thing. Unfortunately, the music business is incredibly complicated. Um, and and to, for a musician to even just get paid for, for all of the various things, uh, mostly on the, on the publishing side, it's, it's yeah. like it's yeah. almost impossible for most musicians to navigate. So, um, you know, even like having a YouTube channel, I mean, believe it or not, you know, Heathen has had this YouTube channel for years. And um, because uh, Google and YouTube changed the rules for monetization, it, 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 it was monetized and then the monetization went away. And now, just as of yesterday, it's monetized again. Oh, but okay. it's also the channel's also managed by the company that owns Nuclear Blast. So, <laughs> you know, like, how do we get paid for that? You know, that's one of the that in this new world when you know those, these are the these are the kind of things that we have to sort of figure out. So, yes. you know, I, I have my own YouTube channel, but it's not anywhere close to monetized because the the rules for YouTube monetization require you to have this massive number of hours per year of views. And for something that I do, you know, that are shorter videos, it's really hard to get there. You know, you basically have to have a whole bunch of 30 minute videos and get people to watch the whole thing so that it all adds up in terms of time. So, yeah. you know, it's like, it, it, sometimes the juice is not worth the squeeze with all the, um, the work that has to be put in for, what amounts to a bunch of pennies uh, for all the streaming. So really ultimately what I'm hoping is that 
um, you know, governments can put together something similar to what we have for uh, physical copies of the album sales, which is that we get what's called a mechanical royalty, where you get a, a set amount of money, which ends up being a few cents per song per copy sold. And um, until they do something like that with digital, we're just going to be getting these partial pennies and you're going to see more and more of the complaining that you saw probably a week or two ago when the head of Spotify um, basically was telling musicians to start cranking music out every six months. Yep. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and it's like, you do the math on that. And I, I mean, one of the prototype songs, for example, uh, on Spotify has 1.3 million streams. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's we're we're sort of a one hit wonder. It's the only song that seems to have that many plays, but uh, we'll take it. Um, but when you, when you add up the money from all of that over that time, uh, it, it's, and, and then you divide it between the record company and the band and then the band, you know, either has to decide to split it between themselves or use it for some purpose. It's so, so small. And you would think like a million people listen to this, you know, that should be worth a little bit more than, you know, 0 0.003 cents per stream. But uh, that's something I think that uh, that uh, if if music creation is to really um get back to being an art form like I think it was for a while. Um, I think it's really going to need to have something where the artists can make a living from it. Otherwise, they're just more or less, you know, doing it either doing it on free time or putting out stuff that's just OK so they can go on tour. Hmm. Um, that's how I see a lot of albums these days is bands crank something out. It's just OK. And, then, and it allows them to go out on, on tour. But it's not a masterpiece. It seems like people are not caring about making a masterpiece because they're like, well, it's not worth it. You know, it's not worth all the extra effort to try and make a masterpiece because we're still not going to get paid for, you know, for the streams or whatever it is, you know. It's, uh, I think it's you're right. Yeah, and look, I think, unfortunately, I think the Spotify CEO might be onto something there because I think your generation are the last of the album generation in terms of, you know, you. the problem is crafting an album like what you've done here with Empire of the Blind, it's an art form and it takes decades to build up the experience. You know, like you don't see great painters producing their best work early on. It happens after decades of them doing it. And it's the same thing thing here with what you've done with Empire of the Blind. And the problem these days is is that the the mechanism for getting music out there is via streaming, and it and that mechanism totally abhors albums and people being a captive audience to what the one band for a longer period of time. It's about Spotify playlists, Apple Radio, I think they call it these days. I don't know what the the equivalent that the Spotify Apple Music, Apple yeah, is. Apple Music, um, and uh, it. It forces people into the, having these short attention spans and to basically trusting that the algorithm is going to throw up songs that they want to listen to, and that's not going to be via albums. And in in that way, I I, I understand. I did. I read and I, I watched the com. Watched the guy. I think it's a video that he put out there. The CEO of Spotify's comments. And initially, of course, I thought like what any of us do who have a skin in this game and want to see bands create albums. I thought, fuck, you're an idiot, mate. But the more I thought about it, I thought, oh my God, he's right. Because 
I mean, he's part of the yeah, problem. Yeah, but he's he is part. Of it, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the major labels, and I'm talking about like Warner, Sony, uh, Universal. Those are sort of the big players, right? Hmm. Unfortunately, they have bought up a lot of the you know smaller labels, and those bigger labels are sort of funding Spotify. So Spotify, if you look at it on the surface, like from a financial perspective, they haven't made it a profit. Uh, now they pay their CEOs and everything and all the heads, of, they pay a massive salaries to all these people, hmm. but the bands don't get a lot. No, and the way yeah. that they do the revenue sharing, if you're a popular artist and you're getting more streams, then you get a bigger share of the revenue. Uh, which is also not fair. I mean, honestly, everybody should get the same, right? Correct. Unless, uh, you know, I, I, unless um, they work out some kind of special deal with Spotify, which is what the major labels have basically done. They've, they've worked out deals where they get a bigger share of the revenue. And in turn, they keep Spotify afloat. Um you know, they could easily all band, band together and say, screw it, we're not sending you any more of our music. Yeah. And then Spotify would go yeah. right down the dumper, right? But mm -hmm. they they don't do that. And so, you know, unfortunately, the artist is the one that gets the short end of the stick in all of this. And, uh, you know, sadly, I think that, uh, you know, that while I hate what the guy said and I hate the royalty rate, He's right about creating content more often. That's the world we live in right now. Like I was saying earlier, the short attention span, I mean, you know, by the time next year rolls around and we're ready to tour for this album, people will be on to the next thing. So we're going to have to figure out what are we going to do, you know, yeah. to remind everybody about this. Um, I'm already kind of thinking like, you know, and Nuclear Blast is sort of starting to get on board with the idea of bands doing singles. And uh, although it's strange, um, it, it may be that may be the way of the future, you know, where you instead of spending all your time making an album, you're making a single and then you yeah. can release something every yeah. couple months or whatever or every quarter and spread it out over time and give yourself more time to work on one song at a time instead of trying to do a full album. So sadly, it's like, you know, it may be the end of the album format if that's the way things play out, but you know, it's too early to tell. Yeah. I think all good, all great points. And I think you're right. And I think nuclear blast will have to get on board with what these hip hop and these urban art, uh, urban labels are doing, which is that there will be a single every month and the album format is it's, it's not going to go away overnight, but I think over the next sort of two decades or so, I think it will be one of those things that is basically a niche thing. It won't ever disappear completely yeah. because there will always be musicians with your experience around that want to create that experience for fans and fans that want that. But if the generation of kids that, like my kids' age, right up to about the twenty-five-year-olds, uh, right, they they're digital natives, man. You know, they're not um, that they're attuned to what's going on right now. And uh, mate, unfortunately, I've got to wind things up because I've got to get these kids organised to school. But uh, believe yeah, me, I could, no I could keep chatting about. I know things. it's a lot. Oh, I yeah. feel like we've just touched the surface, to be honest with you, because this is a topic that I've been wanting to talk to somebody about for a long time, man. So, but look, uh, you're a smart guy. You've got your finger on the pulse. This is an outstanding album. You're an excellent guitarist. I think with with what you're doing here with Dave, and now that I know that you got your hand in the uh, in the management side of things, man, just like just 
keep on doing it, please. We, you know, <laughs> whichever yeah. way, shape or form you can create music and keep bands on the road or keep bands sort of focused on creating content, man, it'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. That's the plan. No worries, mate. Well, really appreciate the chat. Thanks so much, man, and good luck with everything. Hey, thank you very much. It was a great interview. Good talking with you. Thanks, brother. No worries. Talk to you. Chat again. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series. It's indicates for the A-List Online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and that was Craig and Lum from The Outfits, Heathen, and I suppose I'll still say he has something to do with Exodus. So, yeah, let's just say Exodus as well. There you go. Thanks very much for listening.